from God's word, why don't I lead us in prayer? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity and privilege that you have called us to be your people through the blood of Christ, that before the foundations of the earth, you predestined us to be adopted as your children into your kingdom. Now, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to approach it with open hearts and open minds. Help me to speak clearly and boldly and help us all to respond in faith in a way that brings you all the honor and glory that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, last time I was here, I preached the second sermon in what is this series on the book of 2 Timothy. So we're just jumping back a little bit this morning and going back to the beginning of this pastoral letter to Timothy. Now, as we work our way through this passage, the first seven verses of this letter, we will consider the theme of legacy, the legacy that we leave to our children, to our friends, to our colleagues, to our neighbours. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded of my second favourite superhero, Batman, also known by his alter ego of Bruce Wayne. And in one of the more recent film adaptions, Batman Begins, there is a scene where Bruce Wayne feels utterly defeated. His enemies have attacked his home, the Grand Wayne Manor, and it is burning to the ground. And Bruce himself barely escapes with his life. And in despair, he looks back at his childhood home, engulfed in flames, and asks his butler, Alfred Pennyworth, What have I done, Alfred? Everything my family, my father built. To which Alfred replies, The Wayne legacy is more than bricks and mortar, sir. And I won't attempt the British accent in which that was spoken. But you see, in this instance, Alfred is referring to the fact that Bruce's ancestors passed on more than just really good real estate. In fact, they passed on virtues that Alfred could clearly see had been instilled in Bruce. Virtues such as a passion for protecting the weak, for giving generously to the needs of others, and bravery in the face of danger. You see, the true legacy of the Wayne family was not worldly wealth, but was one of deep and noble character. And in the passage that we read this morning, we'll see that the most important legacy that we can leave behind is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through our lives, through our teaching and through our prayers, God can use us to bring others around us to a mature and saving faith in Jesus. And before we begin looking at this passage, let us preface this teaching with a brief look at what Scripture has to say about this man, Timothy, to which the letter is written. So who is Timothy? Well, you might be surprised to know he's mentioned 28 times in the New Testament. We first read of him in Acts chapter 16. Now at this time, Paul is undertaking his second missionary journey when he comes to a city named Lystra. And Paul is, we have an account of Paul taking Timothy here to be one of his companions 
in gospel ministry. Now, this was not Paul's first visit to the city of Lystra. He'd been several years earlier, as is recorded in Acts chapter 14. And the reaction to the gospel message that Paul brought to the city was so hostile that they, in fact, took him out of the city boundaries and stoned him. And yet Paul survived this attempt on his life. And what did he do? He went straight back into town to preach the gospel once again, making many disciples in the name of Jesus. Timothy was likely one such disciple that came to faith shortly, at, shortly after this time. Now, several years later, Paul returns. He finds that Timothy is still a believer in Christ. And more than that, he is well-respected amongst the local church. He was the perfect candidate for accompanying the Apostle Paul and Silas in their missionary journeys. And so you see, Paul was so eager to have Timothy as a partner in ministry that we read that he had him circumcised. And he did this so that Timothy could be fully identified as being from Jewish heritage and not as a pagan that others may have seen him as because of his Greek father. And Timothy would remain very dear to the Apostle Paul for the rest of his life. At the time this letter was written, Paul was, in fact, in a Roman prison cell awaiting execution. And while Paul is writing, Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus, a church that he and Paul had founded over a period of three years. And this letter is, in fact, Paul's very last word to Timothy, and as many suspect, Paul's very last word to the church himself, in fact, his dying words. So let's begin looking at the first seven verses of this wonderful pastoral letter. And as we do, there are three main points we will consider. Firstly, that we have eternal life and peace with God. Second, a faith that is too good. And thirdly, fan the flames. Let's begin. Now in the opening verse here of Paul's letter we can glean a lot of information about who Paul is. We can see his name. We can see his role in the church, his mission, and his motivation. In what is perhaps a modern equivalent, we put a signature block on the bottom of our emails that we send from our workplace, which gives similar information to those who read our messages. In fact, here's mine. Now, I couldn't put some information there for confidentiality reasons, but here you can see some important information about myself and what I do. So I am an environmental officer within development services at Toowoomba Regional Council. Now, I know that still doesn't tell you much, so you can ask me if you really are keen to know. But let's consider how Paul describes himself. Paul writes, I am Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's job description is one of an apostle, one of the very select few commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to be an authoritative witness to his resurrected glory to all the nations to go outside the land of Israel and preach Christ to the known world. That was his mission. And this job description, 
this title had nothing to do with Paul's own merit or holiness. He didn't take an interview like I did for my job. He didn't get a promotion for all the good work that he'd done in the church. Far from it. At the time, Paul was given this title, this mission. He was actively persecuting the Christians of the early church. And so his call to be an apostle was purely by the will of God and the will of God alone. You see, he was rescued from his own evil desires to destroy God's people and instead regenerated by God's Spirit to know, to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. And this is the same way that all who belong to God are called by faith. Not just the evil guys or the bad eggs like we would call them, No, the Bible is clear that without God's intervention, we are all dead in our sins. That's quite popular these days to sort of dumb down this notion, to describe sin as being simply brokenness. And while there's some truth to that terminology, sin does break us. It falls far short of how serious sin really is. Listen to how the American theologian Darrell B. Harrison puts it. He says, A society that sees itself simply as broken as opposed to dead will invariably conclude that society merely needs to be fixed rather than redeemed. You see, brothers and sisters, in Christ we have not merely been fixed of our brokenness. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see, we were once dead in our sins like the rest of mankind. And like the rest of mankind, we were children of God's wrath. But in love, we read, God regenerates the very hearts and souls of his people to love and obey him like they ought to. And even more than that, he gives his children the promise of eternal life in Christ. Listen to the words of John chapter 3, verse 36. We read that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Listen to that wonderful promise, eternal life to all who believe in the Son. The Son who took the punishment for our sins upon the cross the Son who rose to new life in glory and in power. And so if you haven't already heeded that call of God on your life to believe in his Son, his death and resurrection, don't delay. Don't reject him. Don't remain dead in sin and rightfully condemned to God's wrath. Accept the mercy of God that is offered to you in Christ. Because look at the result of this wonderful salvation, this mercy that we've received from verse 2. Paul writes when greeting Timothy, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, by faith in his death and resurrection, we have mercy and we have peace with God, the creator of the universe. 
we can now have complete assurance that our sin before him is forgiven by his unmerited favour towards us. We have grace. We can rest in the knowledge that we won't get what our sins deserve, that he has poured his righteous wrath out on his son on the cross and not on us. We have mercy. And we can stand before the very throne of God with confidence, no longer his enemies, because the hostility between us and him, our sin has been removed. Because like his son Jesus, we are now dearly beloved of God. We have peace with God the Father. This is the great promise of life who defines, that defines who Paul the Apostle is. And we see it's the desire of his heart to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that many more may come to faith and be recipients of these wonderful promises, promises of grace, of mercy, peace and eternal life that are in and through Jesus. And this brings us to our second point this morning, a faith that is too good. Now we all know that, don't we? That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is good news. In fact, it is too good. And I mean that in at least two ways this morning. The first is the news that we can have peace with God is so marvelous. It's so incredible that it doesn't depend on us. It seems almost too good to be true, doesn't it? But it is true. And it's confirmed in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second way in which it is too good is that we cannot, in good conscience, keep it to ourselves. Now, to give an example, I'm a very tragic and loyal supporter of the Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs in the National Rugby League. I can see some people laughing already. Yeah. Now, this, don't get me wrong, this is a team that has had a lot of success in the past. In fact, I started following them because when I was six years old, they won, and that was it. But they have dwelt at the bottom of the ladder for many, many years now. And so when, on very rare occasions, and I mean rare occasions, when my team wins a game, I am over the moon. Now, for those who have been to our house, the lounge room's on one side, a bedroom's on the other, and the way our house normally works is I'm watching the footy, Susie doesn't care, so she's in our room doing whatever else she wants to do. And so when they do win, I jump up, I run around the house, I open the door, we won, we won, to which she doesn't really care. Oh, good for you. <laughs> and so I'll also ring my friend Justin, I'll ring my dad, and if it's my brother's team that we beat, I'll definitely call him. Now, I'm sure we all have these things in life that we get excited about. I did a bit of a poll at our church when I preached this, and some of the things people got really excited about were sales at Spotlight or Lincraft, <laughs> or for some of the blokes it might be BCF. That's something you'd want to spread the word about if that was something important to you, isn't it? A bargain on craft supplies or a bargain on fishing tackle for the upcoming weekend trip. But as exciting as these things are, how much more thrilling, exciting and marvellous is the gospel of Jesus? 
That is truly good news worth telling people about, isn't it? And unlike our sports teams or the sale at Spotlight or BCF, the gospel is good news that everyone needs to hear because it is eternal life to all who believe. And so, quite naturally, we must pass it on. We must share it with our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours. For faith in Jesus is not something to be kept to ourselves. Although the world may tell us to do this at times, that's your truth, but don't tell me anything about it. But no, it is too good to keep hidden. Look at the first half of verse 3. Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. Look what we learn here about the Apostle Paul. We learn that he is a recipient of a faith that is intergenerational. His forefathers have not only served God and put their faith in him, but they also taught it to their children and their grandchildren. And we see in Timothy, the same pattern in verse 5 when Paul tells him, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So you see, brothers and sisters, the fruits of faithfulness in Timothy's family, in Paul's family too. But we see for Timothy, his grandmother Lois loved and served the Lord. She taught her daughter Eunice to do likewise. And Eunice, who we read, despite having an unbelieving husband, taught and mentored her son Timothy in the faith of her ancestors. These women that we read about here lived in humble obedience to God's word in the scriptures. They taught their children about the Lord as it was commanded to them from the law of Moses. Where we read, These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You see, by the time that Timothy was a man, He was so well taught, so well instructed in the Jewish scriptures that he immediately recognized the Christ that Paul preached as being the promised Messiah. He became a disciple, a follower of Jesus as well. And you see, brothers and sisters, more than anything else in this world, the best legacy that we can leave to the next generation is the knowledge of God and his mercy to us in Jesus. You see, that's the only legacy that will truly last. Unlike real estate, unlike holiday houses, it will truly last because through knowing the Lord Jesus as your saviour, you gain eternal life in him. What a legacy that is. Now listen to the words of the American preacher, Costi Hinn. Some of you might recognise that surname, Hinn with good reason. You see, Costi is the nephew of Benny Hinn, a famous preacher, a famous false preacher. But Costi was a supporter of his uncle's ministry in his early years, and yet later in life came to a saving faith in Jesus. 
And we see the fruits of that transforming faith. He now leads a flourishing ministry titled, named For the Gospel. And he is committed to the truth of God as revealed in his word. Now, Costi makes this statement about the core mission of Christian parents. He said this in Father's Day last year to the church when he challenged us with these words. He said, fathers can teach their sons how to excel in business, invest in Bitcoin and play baseball. And yet if they fail to teach them the Bible, they have not equipped them to succeed in what matters most on earth and in eternity. That's quite a challenge, quite a gauntlet that Costi is laying down here, isn't it? But it's not new teaching. This command to pass on the faith to our children is consistent with what Scripture, what God has always commanded his people. We've seen this. And yet we see here in this text that the mandate to instruct those in the faith goes even beyond our blood relatives to within the covenant people of God. So let's take a deeper look at the first half of verse 2 that we skipped over before. Paul writes... To Timothy, my dear son. Do you see that intimacy here between Paul and Timothy? My dear son, he calls this man. They're not physically related to one another, and yet Paul sees and views Timothy as a son in the Lord, in the same way that a father would see his own flesh and blood. And that's the result of being part of the body of Christ, the church. We're all united together as one spiritual family through our Lord Jesus. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we see the mandate to teach, disciple, equip, and pray for one another goes well beyond our own households to the spiritual household of the church, God's family. We are all united in the joy and the grace, mercy and inheritance that we share in our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as we read, in love we pray constantly for one another that God may mature us in him, that we may rejoice together in what he has done for us. Because as we've seen, it is God alone who regenerates our hearts. It is God alone who causes us to find our joy and satisfaction in serving Jesus. And we see a wonderful practical example of this from the Apostle Paul as he intercedes for his dear son, Timothy. He writes that night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. This is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Not just sharing God's word with each other, which is vital, but maintaining faithful and consistent prayer for one another in all seasons. Trusting that God will do the work within us and interceding for one another. 
Because you see, Paul in this instance knows the grief that Timothy is experiencing from being separated from himself, his spiritual father in the faith. And so in love, he constantly prays to God, interceding for Timothy to his father in heaven, interceding that Timothy would maintain and grow in his faith in the Lord Jesus. And notice too that it is in Timothy's growing faith and maturity that Paul finds his greatest joy. Many of us can relate to this, can't we? Seeing other believers that we know becoming more mature in their faith, more knowledgeable of God's word, more zealous for service of the church. We see that in the body of believers in the church. We see many generations of families loving and serving the Lord together. And therefore, the challenge from the text this morning is to continue to commit one another to our Heavenly Father in prayer so that those in the church alongside us may also be growing in faithfulness and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, this promised life that we have in Jesus is too good to simply keep to our personal lives or even in our own family. We must seek to spread the word of God and pray for it to bear fruit in the lives of others so that we may be fulfilled and rejoice in Christ together. And this brings us to our final point this morning, fanning the flames. Now, one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life is that we are not left alone in this world to serve the Lord in our own strength. Because every believer in Christ has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God dwelling within us. That is not a promise for the super spiritual Christians. That is a promise for every believer in Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit is active in the life of the believer in many ways. And one of the ways we read in Scripture that the Holy Spirit acts is to lavish the body of Christ with spiritual gifts. And we read from many lists in the New Testament that these gifts include teaching, encouraging, wisdom, hospitality, evangelism, discernment, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, serving, showing mercy, administration, and the lists go on. One such list is found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we won't read now. But Paul prefaces this list with the following words to give the purpose of the spiritual gifts. He writes that there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. You see, brothers and sisters, all of us are given different kinds of spiritual gifts, yet they are all given by the same God, the same Spirit, for the same purpose. 
And that purpose, we read, is for the common good, for the building of God's church. And none of these gifts are redundant either. Paul goes on to say each member of the body makes a vital contribution to the life of the church. We all need each other's gifts for God's church to function and to grow. And so why have we taken this detour? How does this relate to today's passage, we may ask? Well, let's go back to verse 6. Paul writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Fan into flame your gift, Paul instructs Timothy. You see, Paul and the elders of the church have recognized his spiritual gifting and set him apart to be a leader, a teacher, an evangelist amongst God's people. Paul has already given Timothy the same command in chapter 4 of his first letter. And this command is not just for Timothy, but for all believers to not neglect the calling God has made on your life, to not neglect to use the gifts that he has given us. Give them oxygen so that they may be set ablaze. Now, last year, I had the privilege of going down the mountain to one of our sister congregations, Wishart Community Church. However, wires got crossed, and the weekend that I was invited to go was, in fact, their family camp. So it wasn't at Wishart. It was up on Mount Tambourine. And on the Saturday night before, we were experiencing a little bit of a problem with our campfire. You see, the way the pit was designed was, well, not a good design, there was about a circle of bricks about half a metre in diameter and about half a metre high. And within this circle of bricks, there was a ring of corrugated iron. And so to get this fire going, we quite literally had to fan the flames with the only thing we had available, a foil tray from the kitchen. Because there was no possible way that oxygen could otherwise get into this fire pit and for the blaze to alight. Now, this process took the better part of 45 minutes, fanning the flames until such time as they rose above the wall of the pit and they could burn of their own accord. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, our spiritual gifts are at risk of smoldering, of becoming ineffective if we don't give them the oxygen that they need to burn brightly. That is, if we neglect to use our gifts, if we neglect to develop and mature them amongst the body of Christ. For you see, we've all been given unique and amazing gifts through the Holy Spirit of God. Yours will be different to Timothy's. Yours will be different to the person that you're sitting next to. But they are indispensable to the life of God's people, of this congregation here at Eastgate. So therefore, whatever your gifts may be, fan them into flames. Use them regularly for the common good of God's people. Because look at the results of what occurs when we do fan into flame our gifts from verse 7. 
read, for the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This same Holy Spirit that graciously bestows unique spiritual gifts on all believers in Christ is the same Spirit that enables us to overcome our fears. It is the same Spirit that empowers us for the service of the Lord and for His people. And it's the same Spirit that enables us to truly love others and live the self-disciplined lives that God desires of us. And again, this Holy Spirit dwells within everyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus. So be encouraged with this knowledge to serve with boldness, knowing that God has equipped you and all his people with everything they require through his Holy Spirit. And now as we conclude this morning, let's reconsider and visit some of the key points that we can apply from this passage. Firstly, centre your thoughts on the incredible promise of life in Jesus. You see, from Paul's example of how he sees himself, we see a challenge to centre our thoughts and lives on who we are in Christ. Remember Paul, an apostle by God's will according to the promised life in Jesus. You see, as believers in Jesus, our identity is first and foremost one of God's chosen people, one of his children, recipients of grace and mercy and heirs of eternal life in his kingdom. But if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we meditate on how incredible and glorious that truly is? Now, at our church, we have an evening service, which we go through teaching from Ligonier Ministries. And one such series we did last year was from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson on what it means to be in Christ. And something he said in one of his talks has still stuck with me. You see, he is someone who often gets to interview candidates for ministry to sort of give his opinion on whether they're suitable. And he says that he asks the same question to every candidate he meets. And that question is, what do you think of when your mind is empty? Or in other words, what really motivates the desires of your heart through your thoughts? And in asking this question, he challenges all of us to meditate on the joy of our promised life in Christ, to not allow ourselves to become so distracted by the world that we never think about Jesus except on Sunday or maybe in our small group. So the challenge for all of us is to constantly center our thoughts on the incredible promise of life in Jesus. And doing this, then will we, will we be ready to teach and encourage others. Secondly, be a disciple maker through prayer, teaching, and example. Our second application from the text is to be diligent in our commitment to making disciples of Jesus. We do this first and foremost through prayer, diligent and faithful prayer for others, 
setting them apart to our loving Heavenly Father to work in their hearts and minds, interceding on, for them on their behalf so that they may come to a mature and life-saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we also must be diligent in teaching the Word of God, in passing on the knowledge of the mercy in Christ to others in whatever way God has gifted us to do so. Because like we saw, the gospel is too good to keep to ourselves. It's not a private thing. It must be shared. And we must also be diligent in the way we live our own lives and witness to the world. Like Paul was able to say, he served God with a clear conscience. And so we too must be faithful in obedience to God's word with a clear conscience so that our ministry will be effective and the gospel is adorned by the way that God's people live their lives. And lastly, this passage encourages us to be bold in our service of the Lord. You see, quite often we might feel scared, unsure about the prospect of serving God, about serving the church. Well, you'll be pleased to know that you're in good company. You see, Timothy, despite all his strengths, despite all his gifts, had an almost crippling weakness of being very timid at times, of being afraid to do what he was called to do. And yet God in his grace and power equipped him with everything he required for his ministry through the Holy Spirit. A spirit that we read gave him power, love and self-discipline and helped him overcome his fear. Brothers and sisters, we have that same Holy Spirit that is being spoken of here within Timothy. So take that knowledge to heart. Go forward with boldness to serve the Lord because we know he will provide everything we need for his ministry and more. And like the Apostle Paul did to Timothy, encourage and remind your brothers and sisters of this truth, that we have everything we need for service through God's Holy Spirit. Everything that we need to serve the Lord, proclaim his gospel and make disciples for his name, all for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful word that you have shown us this morning. We thank you that we have this great promise of eternal life and peace with you, Lord, that in Christ we have the promise of eternal life, that by your will alone you have adopted us as your children in your mercy, that despite our sinful nature through the blood of Christ, through his death and resurrection, we are at peace with you, Lord, our God and our maker. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful news that is too good not to share. We pray that those that we do share the faith with, that you would enable them to see and hear and believe the truth of Jesus. We pray that you would use us to leave a legacy behind that is not money, that is not knowledge, 
but is the love that you give us in Christ and that through your mercy, those that hear it can have eternal life with you. Heavenly Father, as we struggle in this world, we struggle to overcome our own fears and those and things that people think of us. We pray that we would take your word to heart, that you gift and equip your people for service. Help us not to allow these flames that you put within us to smolder. Help us to be committed to fanning them, to using our gifts for your glory and for your service. And so as we go forward into another week, help us go forth with confidence in your spirit. And we pray you would give us opportunities to share your word with others so that they may hear and believe and be recipients and brothers and sisters in your grace through Christ, we pray. Amen.